Last time we saw the commander of the fortress Antonius send Paul to Felix, the governor, for further disposition of his case. And with Paul, he sent a letter giving some background to Paul's case in a way that partially stretched the truth to make Lysias look good. Let me read that again to you from chapter 23, beginning at verse 26. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. So sending him out by night so that he could thwart the plans the next morning for Paul to be ambushed, uh, he sent Paul on a rather quick 60-mile journey to Caesarea. And Paul was delivered to the governor who commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. And that's where we pick up the narrative tonight as we learn about Paul's defense before Felix. Verse 1, now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now in um, Lysias' letter to Felix, he said that he had commanded Paul's accusers to state their charges against the apostle in the presence of the governor. And this is what happens five days after Paul's arrival in Caesarea, the delegation of his accusers arrives there. And we're told of three uh, components of this delegation. There's Ananias, the high priest. Now, the fact that the high priest himself would come would show the importance of this case for the Sanhedrin. Then we're told the elders came. This would be a portion of the Sanhedrin, and most likely this was the Sadducees. They were the ones who disagreed with Paul about the resurrection. You recall when he stood before the Sanhedrin, he brought up the issue of the resurrection. The Pharisees actually defended him. It was the Sadducees who were opposed. And so likely they are the ones, at least some of the ones here included among the elders. And then we're told a certain orator named Tertullus. Now this was a man who was trained in rhetoric, something very important. In that day, he was a professional, and it was not uncommon in a significant case to hire someone, just like we hire a lawyer, hire someone trained in rhetoric to be able to most effectively present the case before the judge, in this case, the Governor Felix. And verse 1 ends with a summary statement. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now, that's just a summary statement, but what happens beginning in verse 2 is That summary statement is unpacked, so we find out exactly how that happened and and what they did in terms of their accusations. So from verses 2 through 4 we read, And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great great peace, and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places most noble Felix with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words of us. Now, I read that the first objective of a courtroom address in this day was to curry favor from the judge. And that's very clearly what Tertullus does. To put it more colloquially, that's a hard word to say, colloquially. 
He's trying to butter up the judge. So he praises him for the great peace and prosperity brought to this nation by his foresight. Now, this is surely disingenuous. Um, As one of the commentators notes, actually, Felix's tenure was marred by constant unrest and violent clashes between imperial forces and the oppressed Jewish and Samaritan populace. His hostility to the Jewish subjects exacerbated the problems. So, He's not being very sincere when he says this, but of course he's being strategic. Um, Peace was a Roman ideal, and and he is going to accuse Paul of being one who disrupts the peace. And so he appeals to Felix as a great promoter of peace. And he addresses him as most noble Felix. And, And just as we saw with Claudius Lysias earlier in his letter, this is terminology that technically is above the status that Felix would have. But again, this is another way of seeking to curry his favor. And he concludes, nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. He doesn't want to be tedious. The fact is he could go on and on, so great is Felix. But he sounds humble. He sounds sincere, indeed reverent before the governor. And scholars who know Greek much, much better than I do tell us that the Greek he employs here is of a very high order. He was a very effective rhetorician. But all of this address is part of his buttering up to Felix. And now we get to specific charges against Paul. Verse 5. For we have found this man a plague a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So there's three things said here. They really comprise one charge against Paul. He's called a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now by calling calling Paul a plague... He accused him of being a carrier of seditious information that posed as great a danger to social tranquility as the bubonic plague did to life itself in the Mediterranean's teeming ports. That's a quote from a commentator. I can't write sentences that well. Um, It's a metaphor, of course. He's not literally a plague, but it's a very vivid metaphor. Paul can have the kind of impact throughout the empire that the plague can have. That he creates dissension among the Jews throughout the world shows that Felix is not dealing just with a local problem, but one that has empire-wide implications. Recall that it was Jews from Asia Minor who had come to Jerusalem and instigated the riot. If this is potentially an empire-wide problem, then he could really earn some favor from his higher-ups if he dealt with it the way they desire him to do. He's called a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and while sect is a word that can be used rather innocuously, let me slow down, here it has the connotation of heresy, a heresy of which Paul is a ringleader. And he's identifying the Christians as a sect of the Nazarenes. So the basic charge against Paul here in verse 5 is that he's a dangerous troublemaker who, in causing dissent, among Jews all over constitutes a threat to the peace of the empire. The kind of thing that certainly Felix would want to put down. Then verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him 
according to our law. Now, the charge of profaning the temple goes back to the accusation made by those Jews from Asia Minor against Paul in the temple. We read in Acts 21, verses 28 and 29, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, in this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And then Luke adds parenthetically, For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Now, as we noted when we considered that passage, this charge was baseless. Because Paul had been seen in the city of Jerusalem with a Gentile from Ephesus, it was assumed by them that he had broken Jewish rules by bringing the Gentile into the temple. But that was an assumption without factual foundation. Nevertheless... The charge is repeated here to Felix. He even tried to profane the temple. So representing the Sanhedrin, Tortullus notes that the Jews in the temple had seized Paul in order to judge him by their own law. In their minds, Paul was guilty of a capital offense and deserved to be killed. However, Rome stepped into the situation in the purpose of Claudius Lysias. We read in verses 7 through 9, But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse you. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Now, depending on what translation you have, you may or may not have seen all those words. Portions of verses 6 through 8 do not appear in all the Greek manuscripts. So, for instance, the ESV does not include all these words. What this fuller passage in the New King James suggests is that Claudius Lysias was wrong to violently interfere with an internal Jewish matter and then to send Paul and his accusers to bother Felix. Now, all translations include these words to the governor. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. So the delegation from the Sanhedrin added their assent to Tertullus' claims, probably seeking to put political pressure on him to rule in their favor. He wanted to have peace with the Jews. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body uh, in their system. And so having them present, having Ananias there present, having a great orator like Tertullus speak on their behalf, they're seeking to have that kind of influence on the governor. And there the defense rests, uh, the prosecution rests. And we shift to the defense. We shift from Tertullus to Paul, verses 10 through 13. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. So in an act of showing that he's in control of the situation, Felix merely nods to Paul to give him permission to speak. That's the kind of thing you'd expect a king to do, a governor to do. He simply nods, okay, And the apostle begins, he begins with kind words to Felix, but they don't have the kind of exaggerated flattery or fiction that the words of Tertullus did. 
Paul acknowledges that the governor had ruled over the Jews for 12 years, suggesting that he would be familiar with Jewish concerns. Paul notes that his first arrival in Jerusalem was recent and of brief duration. And he says of his accusers, that's those who were there before Felix, they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. So Paul declares his innocence of these accusations. Furthermore, he notes that the accusers standing there before Felix neither saw nor can prove Paul guilty of doing the things with which he has been charged. The fact is that the original accusations were made by Jews from Asia, which since Paul's arrest have disappeared from the scene. At best, the Sanhedrin is making charges based upon hearsay. And hearsay is not permitted as evidence in a court of law. But then having sort of negatively dismissed that, Paul makes a positive statement, verses 14 to 16. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. So Paul makes a confession. But it's not a confession of guilt based on the accusations uh, made against him. It's not a confession that he has broken any Roman law. Paul confesses to follow the way, which was, again, one of those earliest designations for the Christian church. He's here identifying himself with Christ. He confesses to follow the way which his accusers dismissed as a heretical sect. But what is the truth? Well, Paul says he worshiped the God of his fathers. He believed the Jewish scriptures, the law and the prophets. And he had the same hope in God and the resurrection of the dead as his Jewish accusers. Now, again, that might be a little bit of a needle in there because he knows the Sanhedrin is not united in their view of the resurrection. But Paul declares, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And that confession should hardly be any concern to a Roman governor. And the apostle then proceeds to summarize his recent action and to challenge the veracity of the charges against him, along with the trustworthiness of those who make them. Starting at verse 17, now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple neither with the mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Well, what had Paul done? Remember, he, he, grew, he was born in Tarsus, but he grew up in Jerusalem. But, of course, he's been busy on his missionary journeys for a number of years. And after many years, he has come back to Jerusalem to bring alms and offerings to his nation. And this would be the gift that was donated by those Gentile Christians throughout Asia Minor to help the Jewish Christians 
in Jerusalem. Now, it was Jews from Asia that encountered him in the temple. But how did they find him? Ritually cleansed, purified, exactly what a good Jew would be if he were in the temple. He clearly states that the Asian Jews, oh, he clearly states of the Asian Jews what he had insinuated before. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. And so again, he's got the message to Felix. Don't judge me on the basis of hearsay. If anything did happen in the temple, these men standing before you weren't there. They didn't witness it. They know there were some there who did witness it, but they're not here. So don't rule on the basis of what they claim. So the prosecution has made the case. The defense has spoken, and it's time for the judge to rule. Verses 22 to 23. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And we're told that Felix has more accurate knowledge of the way. He has served in Palestine for some time and it appears that he knows something about the Christians. He knows something about their teaching. It seems that he sort of agrees with Paul. This is not the kind of sect, the kind of heresy that he's being accused of being a part of. The governor's decision is to delay making a decision. He says, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. And he's really in a delicate situation here. He probably recognizes that. On the one hand, Paul is a Roman citizen. He wants to be very careful, not on the basis of some trumped-up charge, to come to some decision against a a Roman citizen for which he could be held accountable. At the same time, he wants to appease the Jews, especially the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. He doesn't want revolt in his territory, so he hesitates to let Paul go. And so he just delays. But he allows Paul, he, he, he has Paul kept in custody, but with a certain amount of liberty. He's allowed to have his friends come and visit him and to provide for him. And as we've noted on previous occasions, this was the way Roman imprisonment worked. You were dependent upon outsiders to bring your food, to bring your basic supplies, and that was going to be allowed. Whether Paul had additional freedom, we don't know. Perhaps he wasn't, you know, bound in a cell in some terrible way. Uh, We're not sure exactly um, where he was, but he had this freedom, and he was allowed to have visitors. Then verses 24 to 25. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Now, Felix's curiosity has been piqued. He has some knowledge of the way, but with his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish, he brings Paul in for a private audience with them. 
And Paul speaks to them, we're told, of exactly what we'd expect Paul to speak. He speaks of the faith in Christ. Now, to understand why Paul addresses the specific things he does, it's helpful to know something about the background of Felix and Drusilla. So one commentator very concisely tells us, Drusilla was Felix's third wife. She was the daughter of King Herod Agrippa I and the sister of King Agrippa II. Felix had seduced Drusilla, who promptly divorced her former husband in order to marry Felix. So knowing that as the background, let's consider the three things we're told Paul speaks about. First of all, he speaks about righteousness. Now, what might Paul say about righteousness? Well, he might talk about what righteousness demands, what it means to be a failure in terms of righteousness, and he might speak that the only true righteousness is that from Christ, which we can receive through faith in him. Certainly, Felix and Drusilla knew that in some significant ways, they were unrighteous. Then he speaks of self-control, and I'm told that this had sexual connotations, the idea of not having sexual self-control. And again, this would be something which both Felix and Drusilla would know they were guilty about. And then he spoke of judgment to come. Having established righteousness, their failure to be righteous, he lets them know that there will be a final reckoning. And no doubt, as the apostle evangelist that he was, he would call them to repent and to trust in Christ as Savior. You see, Paul presented to Felix and Drusilla things concerning the faith in Christ in a way that touched them where they were. At their point of guilt, he showed the consequences of being judged in that guilt and then the offering of the gift of Christ's righteousness as the answer to that guilt. And the apostle must have made an impact That message must have been received at some level because Luke tells us Felix was afraid. I mean, think of what he has just heard. Basically, he's been been told, you are guilty and you are going to face God in judgment one day. And Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Now, the governor does seem to have had some genuine spiritual curiosity, but that was not the only thing that was at work in his delay in issuing a final decision about Paul. For we read in verse 26, Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Now, remember what Paul had told him. Paul had told him that he had brought money to Jerusalem from friends in Asia. And Felix has said that he's allowing his friends to visit him. So Felix hoped that maybe some of that money that Paul had brought would be brought to Paul so that he could bribe the governor for his release. That wasn't legal, of course, but it was the kind of thing that did happen. It's the kind of thing that someone in power might be tempted to pursue. In any case, the governor could remain on good terms with the Jewish leadership so long as he kept Paul under lock and key. And that's what we find in the the last verse, verse 27. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. He said he was going to delay the decision until Claudius Lysias came. That could have taken just a few days. 
actually two years passes. He calls Paul in to speak to him from time to time, perhaps a mix of some spiritual curiosity, a desire for a bribe. And when he's recalled to Rome, Paul is left there, and he decides to do the Jews a favor by leaving Paul in custody. And so he can leave on somewhat good terms, having not caused some sort of uprising in the land that was his. Now, if you heard that, I trust that, like me, you were reminded of a similar situation in the Gospels. Actually, a situation before another Herod, when John the Baptizer was imprisoned by Herod Agrippa. And what did John the Baptizer do? He accused him of sexual sin. And Herod was intrigued, and he would call him and speak to him from time to time. But in John the Baptizer's case, Herod was weak-willed when it came to the demands of his wife, and he had John baptized. But what we see in both of those cases is that in the presentation, he had him beheaded, beheaded. Did I say baptized? He was. That was what he wanted. I don't know. I just turned 59, and um, I don't know. This is getting harder, so I've got to be careful. He would have liked to have had him baptized if he had come to faith, but he didn't get that opportunity. Paul would have, John would have liked to do that. Herod had him beheaded. That's my daughter's back there going. Which usually means you're preaching too long. Stop. But in this case, it means he was he had him beheaded. But what we see in both of these cases that in the presentation of the gospel, these men were bold, and when it came to the issue of sin, they didn't downplay it. There are some people who, in the name of the gospel, don't talk about sin. Joel Osteen says it makes people feel bad. They already feel bad. We shouldn't talk about that. I once went to a crusade, and there was a lot of good things about it, but when the, the gospel was presented and the call to come forward, it was all what Jesus can do for you, but there was no discussion of sin and your unrighteousness. So we need to be aware that not only outside the church is there misunderstanding and misrepresentation of the gospel, even inside the visible church, that can be the case. Now, it's a case-by-case basis of how we bear witness, and we see that Paul doesn't always do this in the same way everywhere he he does. But there is a place for speaking to the issues of the day and the issues perhaps of the very person to which you are speaking to set them in the broader eternal context and to let them know the guilt of sin, the requirement for righteousness, and the possibility of that coming to you as a gift through faith in Christ, but the warning that apart from that, you face judgment. There is so much pressure on Christians today to soft-pedal the gospel, to soft-pedal the ethics of Scripture, to be so careful that we don't want to offend the culture, that we withhold the very message that the culture needs to hear in order to be transformed, which, that, which is the message of salvation through Christ that actually deals with sin and transforms people. So we need, just need to be careful. We need to be aware that that temptation is out there. We should not be surprised when we see others succumb to it, even Christians. But let us pray for God's grace to strengthen us and embolden us to remain true to the real gospel, to have enough concern about those around us that we will address it to them, not soft-peddling anything, 
but sharing the only message that can give them eternal hope. And we can also pray that that would happen this week at General Assembly, that when issues are being dealt with, that we will be true to the truth of Scripture.